Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging gospel to change people's lives. I'm Eric Sintel, your host, and in this episode, I am interviewing Jared Bias. Uh, this is the second time I've talked to Jared, and uh, the first time we talked about his book, Love Matters More, um, shortly after it had been released. And in this episode, we catch up on the book and kind of bringing it from 2020 into 2022. It's only a couple years, but it feels like so many events have happened that I thought it was it would be fun to catch up and, and see how that book and its ideas apply even more today than it did just a few years ago. Um, and we have, I think, a really good intro interesting conversation about truth and love. But I realized uh, later that uh, with hindsight, I realized we should have defined love and truth before we jumped into the conversation. I think we kind of jumped into it assuming we shared those definitions since I had read his book and we talked previously. And I do think we, in fact, share our definitions of love and truth. But in hindsight, I can see how our conversation would have been a little easier if we, even you know, people who hold a lot in common in our views, had refreshed our definitions of love and truth. Um, so for Jared, um, there are three different types of truth: you know, fact, truth, uh, meaning, truth, more symbolic truth, and then wisdom, truth. And for him, wisdom, truth is the highest form of truth, and he defines it in his book, Love Matters More as a nuanced life of love patterned after Jesus. Um, and then he quotes a, uh, another person's definition of love, the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another spiritual growth. Um, and so, uh, and then I'll throw in another definition. This is from Thomas J. Ord. Thomas J. Ord says that love acts intentionally in relational response to God and to others to promote overall well-being. And so, as you can hear in our conversation, um, Jared and I are kind of trying to get at what does love look like in our interpersonal relationships or in our society, um, and maybe it looks like what in this given moment, in this given situation, promotes the overall well-being of other people. You know, does it promote the overall well-being of the person in front of me or the people looking at my Facebook newsfeed or my Twitter stream for me to you know, say a lot of um, things that I think are true, but I know are going to rile them up, upset them, and just create um, issues or barriers in their relationship with me and my relationship with them. Um, probably not, right? And so then we need boundaries. And Jared and I talk a little bit about that and about how we could draw boundaries around certain topics or the way we discuss and approach certain topics um, in certain situations or relationships. Um, and we also talked just a little bit about, you know, when, you know, people are being harmed or there's abuse or something like that, that maybe in those situations, you know, we do have to um, step up and speak out and take action, even if it upsets people, even if it does damage some relationships, because what is love? It's promoting overall well-being. It's extending oneself for the purpose of nurturing someone else and their spiritual growth um, or their overall well-being. And so, uh, like Jared says in this podcast conversation, you know, we need nuance, we need wisdom to discern in any given situation, what is the most loving response? What is promoting overall well-being most uh, effectively? 
and what is, you know, extending oneself to nurture other people um, most effectively or most efficiently. So uh, let's get into this conversation. I really enjoy it. and I hope you do too. Yeah, so just a, a recap of Love Matters More. I mean, the subtitle is probably more telling. It says how fighting to be right keeps us from loving like Jesus. And so that, I mean, the, the real heartbeat of that is, maybe I'll say it in a different way than I have uh, previously, which is I sometimes feel like we think that the ends justifies the means, that somehow if we could just coerce people into our understanding of what would make the world a better place, then we would get to that better place. But we undermine our project by the way that we interact with each other in our conversations about how to get to that better place. And so we, it's the self-defeating cycle. Yeah, I think that's very well said. Um, I mean, you could even directly quote some people um, as saying that is, you know, this is so important. The mean, the ends are so important that they justify almost any means. Um, and so it occurs to me, though, that that seems to be pretty antithetical to Jesus um, and the way Jesus, the ministry that Jesus modeled. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think of it actually reminds me of this story from when I was a pastor and I was running from our, our, we had two buildings, my office is in one building. And then we had a staff uh, that's where it was in a different building as well. And we had our staff meetings in the other building. So I'm running, I was running late for a staff meeting and someone from the congregation had stopped something and I ran past her. I came back and she had just told me her son was struggling with, with a drug addiction. And so I took a few minutes and I just said, Hey, like I'm like huffing and took a second and was like, Hey, you know, how's your son doing and everything and um, checking in and all that stuff. And then that week I got a, an email from her that said, Hey, I know, I noticed you were on the way to something and you stopped and you asked me about my son and that meant a lot. And then she said, it reminds me of Jesus. Um, because if you think about it, Jesus did a lot of his ministry on the way. He was usually going, usually stories start with, and as Jesus was headed down to X, Y, and Z, and then you get the story. And we don't really recognize that most of Jesus's ministry was in an, it, it was an interruption. Um, it was an interruption to go do some religious thing or, to, you know, a pilgrimage to a festival or heading for this place or that place. And most of his ministry was on the way. And so what that, for me, it's, that's been a really, uh, you know, she kind of spoke a sermon to me in that email and it stuck with me. And there's many things that I've taken from it. But one, as it relates to this is, Jesus seems to be invested in the process, not just the cause. Mm -hmm. There isn't some abstract cause that Jesus is interested in. It is in the actual human beings and people that he sees in front of him. The interactions matter. The, the conversations matter, not just trying to get to some policy being made or some uh, rule being uh, enforced. So I think it's important to take away from what we see in the life of Jesus that it's in the interactions that we can see love being embodied and that we have to take at least as seriously that as we would, you know, so, the, the social and systemic and policy issues that are incredibly important and also biblical and worth fighting for, but we can't lose sight of that other piece. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as you were talking, it kind of brought to my mind, you know, recent current events and news and 
you know, I, um, when, I, I want to say your book came out in 2020 before the pandemic or, or was right it after September of 2020, September of 2020. Okay. So yeah. So love matters more came out, you know, how fighting to be right keeps us from loving like Jesus came out September, 2020. And so just right in the midst of the pandemic and um, right after the George Floyd protests. So a lot of things were going on, um, but it seems like 2021 is now three years long, you know, things just keep happening. And you know, it seems like every time we think that the pandemic is about over or things are about to settle down and return to some sense of normal, uh, something else happens. And, you know, so um, I think your book is probably even more necessary than ever um, in light of all of the recent current events and the hostilities that we have uh, toward each other as, as people, it seems, you know, so uh, just to get really specific, you know, maybe the, you know, we, your book comes out in September 2020, and then we have the January 6th, you know, Capitol riot and insurrection, we have all of the vitriol surrounding the election. Um, and so how would, if, if your book was mandatory reading for everyone in America, <laughs> or at least all the Christians in America, you know, how would that change the way that we um, experience and approach, you know, things we disagree on politically or socially? Well, I think, again, this is more nuanced as I've had the chance to have a lot of conversations since the book came out is I think it's, it's if we could be aware, and I think that's a, a key word, awareness of what's going on when we have disagreements, what, what's going on in us emotionally and psychologically, relationally, we tend to focus on the intellectual piece of it. The, it's just the issue. It's just an argument. It's all about logic and reason as though we're, we're robots. And so there is that, like we got to of the argument, getting being right. So that's the being right part. Um, but we don't recognize the relational damage that we do in those arguments. And we also don't recognize our own liability or our own weaknesses in that, which is Usually emotionally, we have our egos wrapped up into it. We're not arguing because we truly love and believe in uh, the the cause. I'm sure that's part of it, but it's always mixed in with these ulterior motives of being right, not being made to look like a fool, not wanting to feel embarrassed, making sure that we're cementing our identity in our tri our tribe sees us arguing about something. We get you know brownie points for that, and we can go back and feel good about ourselves. That's all in the mix. And so there's this deep work, I think, of self-awareness that needs to take place because we can wield good arguments, what we think is for a good cause, out of good motives, and we damaging relationships and harming other people. Don't take stock of those things. Just do the work of where am I, if I'm truly, truly honest with myself, where is this about me and not about victims, not about the common good, not about the ultimate win, but it's really about me winning um, in whatever need I have, whatever you know, hole in my heart or whatever ego need I have or whatever you know, lack of, of confidence or insecurity I have, what's coming out in these conversations? And I think if we could learn how to manage our side of the street and manage our own junk then I think these conversations could be a lot more fruitful and we could get to what I think we all really want, which is let's solve some problems in a real substantial way. Yeah. Um, so what kind of what I hear you saying is 
often when we're arguing with other people um, about politics or religion or anything else, you know, it's as much about what's happening with us internally or what's going on, you know, and with our baggage and background as it is anything. And if we could maybe compartmentalize or at least recognize the role that that plays, that might make a difference in how we approach that issue or talk about that issue. Is that a, a fair restatement? Yeah, absolutely. The only thing I would change wouldn't I wouldn't want to compartmentalize it because that may skew to let's kind of shove it down. I would rather us inspect it. Let's bring it out in the open. Let's do the hard work with you know therapy and counseling and 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 community groups and small groups and just the conversation around introspection, reflection, and what is my baggage. I think sure. if we're not aware of our baggage, we we might be harming people and we're not aware of it. Sure. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, it seems to me like a lot of people that I know personally, and also, you know, just people I hear from or observe, you know, in society at large, uh, lack a lot of that self-awareness. Um, I know that I can certainly lack that self-awareness in the moment and at times, but it's also something I try to cultivate. And so I think I tend to notice it when it's not cultivated in others. I'm you know, it just kind of a, it really surprises me sometimes the positions people might take or the attitudes people might express that don't really fit with other things I know about those people, you know, and the choices they make, the way they live their life, um, their hearts, you know, it's like, you know, you're taking this position or expressing this attitude that <clears throat> is a very unloving and un-Jesus-like and in other areas, you're a very loving Jesus-like person. So what's up with that, you know, and and so, yeah, I think that self-awareness is so key um, for disagreeing better, working toward common solutions better, as well as, you know, just our own personal, you know, spiritual growth. Um, so how, Jared, how has the book been received? You know, I'm sure you've had a lot of positive feedback, a lot of people telling you how it changed their lives or changed the lives of people they know or things that, you know, ways it impacted their church or their small groups. Um, do you have any stories that you want to, of that, that you want to share with us? Uh, yeah. I mean, so I did, uh, I went on kind of on tour with the book to do this workshop um, on how to love people within a disagreement. Like wh what about when we, I wanted to get kind of our, my hands dirty. I wanted to roll up our sleeves and say, look, no, specifically, do you have a family member that, you're, is on the different side of the political aisle as you, and how are you managing that? And so we we did this tour, and, and there were some really good stories about feeling stuck. You know, what do I do when the other person isn't behaving themselves? And so that's where we are able to do a deeper dive and talk more about boundaries and what does it mean to love yourself well while also standing up for what you believe, and um, and how do you how do you love people well and still have your convictions and that it just gets very messy. And, and so I, I really appreciated hearing a lot of those stories of, Hey, I feel stuck. I tried to have the conversation, but I feel attacked every time I even bring it up, you know, of trying to disagree well and maybe get them to see some of my points while also listening to theirs. And, and so I think the conversation around boundaries was really important because that's something that unfortunately, you know, I couldn't put everything in the book is something I think really worth exploring is when love matters more, does that mean I'm just a doormat for whatever anybody wants to throw at me? Or does that mean I can't stand up for myself or my own beliefs? And I think that's what we've been sold, is that love is passivity and love is 
just taking what people give me. And I think that doormat theology is harmful and unhelpful and it's not loving um, for anyone. And so we have to navigate that well, which is take some deprogramming from maybe what we've been taught in our Christian culture in certain traditions. Yeah, I, I love that. And I found that to be 100% true for me in my life. Um, you know, I disagree on a lot of things with some of my family members. You know, I'm pretty progressive politically. My Most of my family are pretty conservative politically. Um, and so, you know, we've had some heated conversations in the past, and I finally had to learn to draw a strong boundary there. And we just basically, we just don't discuss certain things. We don't bring up certain things. Um, and, but it is, it's not being a doormat. It's a very active process, you know, on my part. I'm very actively not bringing those things up, not feeling resentment if, you know, just simply because I know they believe something different or, if I see, you know, them express something different on Facebook or what have you, um, you know, I'm at the, I used to get very upset about that and allow that to really get to me. And now I have a really strong boundary where, you know, I might disagree and, but I, um, I just kind of shake it off, you know, in your book, the love matters more you, and in our previous podcast conversation, you, um, you know, talked about how love can change the truth. Um, and that's really stuck with me because it's, you know, yeah, I believe X, they believe Y, but because we have a relationship, because we love each other in spite of our differences and disagreements that can, in a sense, change the truth of, you know, I'm not going to argue with them about this. It's not, you know, worth damaging the relationship instead and stressing myself out, uh, really to no effect. It's much better to have this boundary and just not discuss certain things. Or if we do, you know, just have a very firm boundary on when enough is enough, um, or what kind of conversation that might look like, you know, would it be more lighthearted and more serious? Um, were there any people in that workshop or that, um, that book tour, if you will, who, had similar or different strategies that they found to be helpful in establishing some of those boundaries? Yeah. I mean, again, I also did a, a podcast called how to disagree and we, I had guests on there, just everyday people who had, who came on. And one of the things that I liked, I didn't put in the book, um, but she had a great idea was, which I included in the workshop later because I thought it was such a good idea is setting a timer. So I thought that was a really cool idea. And so like her and her dad, they were the arguers in their family. And so when they would get together, they would like want to argue about politics. But it, they realized, one, if they argued too long, the rest of the family was going to get pissed at them. Like, okay, guys, enough. This is enough. But two, they realized if they kept going on too long, it would get personal. It would it would devolve. And so they have a timer. And they said, like, oh, we're going to have this? Okay, let's debate. And we're going to set a timer for 20 minutes. And we're going to set it aside. And I just thought that was really healthy and a self-aware way to say, hey, we both like this. This is a fun part of our personality. We want to go to, you know, we want to argue, we want to debate. But then at the end of the day, we realize, you know, we're not trying to convince each other. We just want to be heard and we want to hear the other person. And so we'll set a timer and then we'll move on. And again, if I can dovetail that, because you mentioned earlier the reaction, the number one negative reaction, of course, is people who say, Oh, you're getting too soft. Like, but truth matter. Truth is the most important thing. Telling the truth in love. You're missing out the truth part, and which is ironic because they're missing the entire point I'm making. But, um, but I think that is important because I think 
I think what that uh, critique of, of the book means is that there is still this sense in which we're afraid to lo- let love matter more. We're afraid of the consequences if love matters more because love feels less rigid. It feels gray. It feels less boundaried. It feels less certain because it's relational and it's adaptable. And like you said, it the truth changes in the midst of a relationship. So it's very telling to me when someone says, no, but the truth, it's basically what you're telling me is the truth matters more than relationship. But when I ask what matters most in your life, they would say relationships. But they, they've come to believe that truth-telling is what relationships are about. And I think that gets real squirrely. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I think it's, again, that lack of self-awareness to say, actually, you're just afraid. Uh, but you're, you don't want to admit that you're afraid. Because when we just let our guard down and let the rules be wisdom-based and relational-based, it's risky. It's vulnerable. And love is like that. It's risky and vulnerable. And we have to decide if it's worth it or not. But let's not confuse the task. Yeah, I think that's so well said. So um, you said toward the end there, you said that if we let love be wisdom-based and relationship-based, or the rules, rather, the rules be relationship-based and wisdom-based. Could you explain to us a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, this idea, it really, I mean, not, I don't want to get too nerdy here, but it really comes from what I would call uh, an epistemology or a way of thinking about thinking that says the reason we flourish as human beings is because there are clearly defined categories. Things are black and white and there's order. Order is what brings flourishing. And so we need rules. And that's what the Bible gives us rules for how we live. And they come directly from God. And there's this foundationalist idea that if we have a strong, inerrant, if I will, foundation, um, then we can build a flourishing culture and society on top of that because we have the black and white rules from God directly. That leads, in my understanding, to a lot of oppression because life simply isn't black and white. And experiences matter and relationships matter. And so what is true in one scenario isn't universally true. It's true given certain conditions. And that takes nuance, which for me, nuance in life is another word for wisdom. And relationships are the stuff of wisdom. It is what you and I, Eric, and our relationship, for that to flourish, there is a connection that's more than the sum of its parts. It's not reduced to the ingredients. It's when you mix your personality and my personality. It's when we mix your baggage and framework and context and history with my context and history. That relationship becomes its own thing. And if we start to atomize things and break it down into these black and white categories and one plus one is always two, we miss the wisdom and relationship that one plus one sometimes is three or mostly three um, because it becomes its, uh, its own third term. And so... That's the that gets very abstract, but really what I'm saying is, for me, rules are elementary and important at a developmental level, and then we need to grow out of them to face the real world, which is full of gray and nuance and ambiguity, and that doesn't take fixed rules to navigate well. It takes wisdom and relationship to navigate well. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's so well said. Um, thank you for unpacking that a little bit more. So would it be fair to say that people maybe are afraid to prioritize love over the truth um, because they're afraid of redrawing some of those boundaries of our morality and ethics, our relationships, you know, because like you said, if you have, you know, if you point to something and say, well, the Bible says it right here in black and white, and that settles it. And then, you know, that, that provides kind of a comforting box to live in, so to speak. And then if you even say, well, yeah, it does say that, but interpreted in its historical, cultural, social context, it actually means something quite different, or there's actually a lot more gray or a lot more nuance. And, you know, we have to really work hard to figure out how to apply that to our lives, if we even should apply it to our lives today. Um, you know, that'll, that kind of conversation alone can put a lot of people on edge, you know, and make people worry about, uh, like you said, oh, you're uh, sacrificing the truth or the, the important thing is to tell the truth in love. Um, and, and so by, you know, emphasizing love over truth, you know, capital T, um, we are actually taking that risk of being vulnerable and also getting outside that comfortable box and into a much messier, much harder to navigate kind of situation of trying to figure out case by case or situation by situation, you know, how do we apply these universal principles of love and compassion and um, the fruits of the spirit? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. I, the, the discomfort of it. Um, I, I think I would add that I think, and you can tell me, but I think maybe what we're also palpating or trying to get to is the flip side of truth is actually control. I think that's what we're afraid of, is we're afraid of losing control. What will happen if there isn't a great enforcer of black and white rules that brings social cohesion and order. What will happen if? And that what will happen if is, I think, what drives a lot of this uh, feeling that we need certainty and we need black and white rules. What would happen if? Um, and that's the risk. The risk is I don't know what will happen if, but I think it's better than us trying to coerce and control each other in the name of God. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. Yeah, there I would agree. There seems to be a lot of, of fear of what will happen F and, you know, wanting control. And then where do you get that? We get that from trying to be very certain about these sets of rules and these uh, principles or truths. Um, and so then on the other side, you know, I can hear, you know, people saying, well, what about truth? You know, if we, if we question these truths, then what about those other truths? You know, if we question what the Bible says about this, then what about what the Bible says about Jesus? Or if we question, you know, this aspect of morality and ethics and, you know, Christian um, ethics, then what about these other aspects? Um, and to me, that's where, you know, the hard work comes in, the messiness comes in, you know, because I don't think you or I or any, most of the people I'm familiar with who kind of fit this mold of thinking, I don't think any of us are saying just throw out the baby with the bathwater and just, you know, do whatever you want to do without any boundaries or limits. It's, it seems to me like we're, you and I and others thinking similarly are more of the mind 
um, figure out what are the underlying wisdom principles of scripture, of Jesus' ministry, of morality and ethics, and then apply those as best you can, you know, to various situations. Um, and it seems like that's what most people, even the people who would push back a little bit and, and say, well, what about the truth? They're doing the same thing often, but not, maybe not necessarily realizing it or thinking of it in that way. Um, is that, does that make sense? And does that fit with your experience and, and kind of what you were trying to get at with the book and your subsequent uh, work with it? Well, I think, I think what I would say to that is, yeah, people assume, <laughs> here's the thing. I think people assume that what I'm saying is disregard truth. But I think they're maybe more right than they recognize. I do want to dismiss the truth in the way that they are defining truth. I think it's an it's I'm gonna get a little saucy here, but I think it's an immature understanding of truth. The I there it's it's untrained, it's like people trying to argue uh quantum mechanics who don't understand physics. Like you, you just don't have the tools. And so and I think that's threatening to people, and I don't mean to sound kind of I'm not trying to I'm not trying to talk down to anyone, but it's truth is complicated. The idea of truth is complicated. There are very, very smart people who have wrestled with this for the last several thousand years. And to think that we can just identify what truth is and that we have a hold of it, I think is very arrogant. I think we need to approach this idea of humility. And that's why I start the whole book. The whole first chapter is a plea for humility. And, and what I've come to the conclusion of for now, again, it's provisional, is that truth is not an outcome. Truth is a process. Truth is the conclusions we come to when we take data and put it through a conveyor belt that has proven results. That's what truth is. The truth is when we test things against reality and it comes out consistently the same. But we have to put it through a certain system a certain conveyor belt and it's what we're really trusting in is the conveyor belt and so usually what's the conveyor belt that produces truth and i think if we don't recognize we all have a conveyor belt we all put things we all put our data at the beginning and it gets kind of goes through the system and it comes out something if we don't think of truth that way i think we're going to be short-sighted and we're going to be dogmatic when it's not appropriate to be dogmatic. Sure. It's trusting perception. It's this idea that truth is static and the world has always existed in the same way it's existed. And that might be true in some ways in the physical and natural sciences, but that's certainly not true in the social sciences and in morality and in ethics and value systems and culture. That's not the case. And so I just think we need more humility and we need more nuance and conversation. What do we mean by truth? Because if you mean I'm deprioritizing this hegemonic, coercive, absolutist, black and white, direct from God, but what we really mean is direct from the authoritative figures who've always certainly looked certain ways, meaning white and men and older and white and European. Like if if what they process and shoot out the other end is what we mean by truth, then yes, I'm absolutely missing that. 
if what we mean is truth in this nuanced, more science-based, if I can say it that way, like just, yeah, if we can, if we can nuance it that way, then absolutely, no, then no, I am not dismissing truth. I am actually saying, let's lean more on that because that seems to be a reliable way to gather really helpful information. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important because we usually oversimplify and caricature it as though it's like feelings, ooh, ushy, gushy, mushy, like kumbaya versus the truth and reality. And that is just, I think, a childish oversimplification. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think those last couple of things you said just really hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, I hadn't really thought of it in that way before, but I think you're 100% right. You know, generally speaking, many people who really emphasize the importance of the truth, they're talking about the truth as defined by them. They're talking about, right. you know, the correct beliefs, you know, quotation, air quote, correct beliefs as defined by them. And then anything else is, oh, well, those are just your mushy feelings, you know, leading you astray and you've got to fight against that. And I, I would agree that's a pretty immature way of thinking about truth because, you know, if you go through, if you put almost anything through that conveyor belt and it's a very thorough conveyor belt, you know, you're going to get into some pretty darn refined versions of whatever you start out with, um, for sure. You know, I like to think of, um, every, everything, even, you know, brute facts as being somewhat dependent on faith. You know, if I think the sky is blue, well, that's because I have faith in my eyes that they're perceiving that color correctly. Um, well, you know, the blue gold dress that broke the internet a few years ago, um, you know, for those who maybe don't remember that, the, this dress was striped and for some people perceived it as being blue and gold, other people perceived it as being, um, I think blue and black or, or some other color combination. Um, and so this, you know, illustrates how our, even our senses are uh, somewhat subjective and not necessarily reliable. So if we are believing that the sky is blue, well, it's because of this trust we place in our eyes as uh, accurate observers or perceivers. Um, well, so that, I think that applies to pretty much everything. You know, the question is not necessarily, um, is this true or not true, but it's, it's how much evidence do I need to believe that thing? Um, and I think if you look at it that way, you know, you get closer to, you know, a more mature version of, of thinking about truth. And I also think that it fits well with what you were saying about truth being a process, you know, what, what is the truth? Well, is it this output, this outcome, or is it more that process of, what kind of evidence do I want to see? How much of it do I need to see before I take that leap of faith to believe this thing or to act on this thing? Right, right. The truth is probability, right? Yeah. And I think that's the shift we need to make. That's that I sometimes oversimplify and call it like that's the shift from a Newtonian way of thinking, this quantum way of thinking is we used to think like it's all basic machines, A plus B equals C. But the more science has helped us realize like no things are true in probabilities it's it's more or less true things are true in spectrums not in black and white categories yeah and so then you know taking that kind of attitude toward truth you know and applying it to our relationships or our disagreements you know i i think that's where you get those boundaries the ability to 
disagree 100% with your family members or your best friends, um, and yet still love each other, be family, be friends, you know, because you are able to recognize that in terms of applying, you know, whatever you think to be true um, or believe to be true in terms of this relationship, you know, maybe the relationship matters more or should matter more. Um, now I can think of exceptions to even that where, you know, maybe um, there's been some kind of abuse or situation that, you know, you really need to just separate yourself completely from that situation for your own self-protection. You know, so please no one misunderstand me um, in saying you just have to put up with it. You know, like you said earlier, um, you know, this idea of love, it's not a passive thing. It's not a doormat thing, but it's actually more of an active form of setting boundaries and um, kind of, and I think stepping even across those differences um, when appropriate or when possible. Um, what are your, what's your reaction to that? Is that a, a fair description of kind of how to apply what you talk about in Love Matters More and, and your other work? Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I mean, I think there's this also this dynamic we have to talk more about in the church, which is this idea of the idea that love is is passive and it's letting people do what they want rather than me speaking up and taking up space and having a voice. And there's nothing inherently unloving about taking up space, having a voice, and saying what you want. There's nothing inherently – or saying what you feel is okay and not okay and removing yourself from situations in which you've done the respectful and loving thing and been articulate, uh, you know, articulated what you feel like you need or want in the space and having that disrespected. There's nothing that – it's not even in the realm of love or not loving to remove yourself from that situation in order to take care of yourself. And so I just think we have to decouple that because again, in a coercive authoritarian environment, that is seen as or felt as in that system as unloving toward the system or toward the authoritative leader or something like that. But that system doesn't get to define what love is. And so I think it's important that we recognize we have to relearn, we have to recalibrate. If we've been raised in a certain authoritarian system, we have to recalibrate what our role is and what it means for us to love while also being able to, you know, it's it goes back to, again, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so I love, you know, Prentice Hemphill's definition of boundaries, which is the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously, which I think is such a great interpretation of the great commandment. Boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me at the same time, because that fulfills the great commandment. It's not an either or, it's not a seesaw, it's not a zero-sum game. It is the situation in which I feel loved and you feel loved, and those are both equally important. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. Um, I'm going to try to write that down and remember that. Um, <laughs> so, and that you said that was Prentice? Prentice Hemphill, yeah. Prentice Hemphill, Okay. So would it be fair to maybe say that love is uncontrolling? You know, I'm a big fan of Thomas J. Ward and, and his work. And, you know, he argues that love is inherently uncontrolling. And so if we're ever using quote unquote truth to coerce or control 
or manipulate or browbeat someone into agreeing with us or just being quiet, um, then we're definitely not loving, right? And so, in, and maybe that's kind of the guideline for figuring out, you know, do I speak up here in this church board meeting and, and speak my mind and say what I think about this topic we're debating or discussing? Or do I, you know, just keep draw a boundary there and not jump in there and, and make them feel unloved? You know, I, I'm kind of struggling to figure out, you know, how how does this look? You know, how do we play this out in in various situations? Yeah, and I think it's important that we get nuanced here because again, this is about wisdom, not rules, and we have to recognize we're all different. So in that example, okay, I'm feeling a certain way about how this board meeting is going. Do I speak up or do I not? There's a few factors that I think are actually important as to determine what's the most loving, helpful thing in the situation. If, And it comes down to uh, what, you know, communication styles, right? So if I tend to be what's called an aggressor, where I tend to be more dominant, I tend to not listen well, I tend to uh, bulldoze other people's opinions. The right answer to that question, what's the most loving thing I could do, might be that I actually just be quiet, that I need to create space for other people. But if I tend to be a passive or an accommodator um, communication style, someone who doesn't really ever speak up, who doesn't say what they think, who tends to defer to other people, who doesn't want to make waves or you know cause trouble, then the most loving thing I can do might be to step up and to actually voice my opinion, most loving for me, but also for the people I'm speaking on behalf of. And so that is a, a very personal and that's comes back to that self-awareness piece. The answer to that question, I think depends on who you are and what's the context. And we have to know that about ourselves. Like for me, I, I tend to be more an aggressive person. And so my loving thing I've had to learn how to do the last 10 years is to shut up and make space for other people um, and to actually call out other people to speak up and to empower them and to encourage them. But for other people, it's the opposite. And so to give advice that's universally true, again, when we say what's true, what's the thing to do, this is a case in point. It depends. The right thing to do isn't the right thing for certain people as it is for other people. And so that's not relativism. That's just contextual relational wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. So then what happens? <laughs> what happens when, you know, you put the data out there and the data say, and then, you know, a large chunk of the population says, no, I disagree with, you know, so then what do we do at that juncture? Well, I think we have to redefine what the problem is, because it seems to me the problem is education. Gotcha. Or the problem yeah. is fear, you know, during the, the recession, and uh, I forget what book it was, there's a sociological report that talked about all the people in Asia, and recognizing that they were in poverty and that they were have, uh, falling upon a lot of hard economic times. And so a lot of their conclusions were coming from a place of pain and hurt. And I think, well, how do we address the poverty in, in the deep South? That's a question. Like there are real people hurting. And again, for me, it's how do we love matters means we humanize. Like, I don't, I don't know any villains my life. I don't run across villains who want their guns more than they want children to be alive. I, I literally don't know anyone. I mean, there may be some politicians or people. I don't know. I don't know them. But I know in my life, I don't have anyone like that. So I want to really understand 
why they hold the positions they do. And then say like, oh, well, you know what? I think at the least we can agree we don't want kids dying, right? Yeah. So let's build on that. Like our, my, I can have friendships built on that because that's a really important thing that we agree on. I think it's really important we agree we don't want kids dying. <laughs> so how do we let love matter more flourish in those? I, I feel like sometimes we get so passionate about our cause that we miss the solution because we spend all of our time focused on the cause. Sure. You know, it seems to me like um, if there's a if there's a symmetry, that's the word I'm looking for. Seems to me like if there's a symmetry in person A and person B's approach to love and the truth that you know we can we can definitely the world would definitely be a better place <laughs> you know because you know in these debates we've been talking about you know i i kind of see where there's the potential to run up against that hard place like you said you know well then you redefine the the problem and it seems to be education um or it means it's fear or this this place of pain driving someone um and so then you try to get at that and you deal with that but then if the other side of that debate or the, that equation is still very insistent on, you know, more of a coercive, a controlling form of approaching truth and love, you know, that ace. Then I stop talking to them. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's where the boundary right. has to come in. Right. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't, I, it, I mean, I, I kind of tongue in cheek, either we just say, Hey, listen, I don't think we're not going to come to any conclusions here. I, I, think I don't appreciate the way that you're interacting with me around this. And if we can't be more respectful, we can't have the conversation. I'm happy to have other conversations. I'm happy to, but if you bring it up and you're kind of goading me, I might have to create some distance in this relationship because it's just not, it's not healthy. It's not good for me. It's not good for you. Sure. I'd rather, instead of having that debate for 20 minutes, I'd rather go call my congressman or I'd rather go write letters or I'd rather go do something practical protest or whatever we think is the best active solution and action. I'd rather do that than spend the time with you where I'm going to feel really crappy about myself and we're not going to get anywhere. Sure. Yeah. Well, Jared, I, I wish uh, that I had read your book about, I wish that it had existed about five years earlier for me to read it then. And I wish we had had this conversation about five years ago or seven years ago. Now uh, it definitely would have, you know, the wisdom that you've offered in that book and in this conversation, as well as our previous one, you know, definitely would have been so useful to me and saved me a lot of heartache and grief for myself and that I caused others and doing, you know, precisely the opposite of what, you know, you've been talking about. So uh, I highly, highly recommend the book to everyone listening, uh, as well as uh, Pete Enns and Jared's podcast, um, The Bible for Normal People. Um, and Jared, you guys, you know, you're, you have a lot of other projects coming up, a lot of other things, you know, doing, I think Jonah for normal people just came out. Um, and so do you want to talk a little bit about your more recent projects like Jonah for normal people, as well as, you know, any things you're currently working on that may be coming out in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Jonah for normal people just came out. So that's a book um, that was just released. And you can find that and all the other stuff we're doing at thebibleforallpeople.com. Um, we have the podcast and we have a lot of exciting new stuff coming out. So um, we have a community growing there, moving to a new platform in the fall, hopefully, um, where we can have more conversations for people who are 
transitioning faith and asking questions and trying to figure out what role the Bible plays and how does faith look um, in the coming year for them. And yeah, so that is all at thebibleforknownpeople.com. And do you have a sequel to Love Matters More or a second book on a you know, different topic? Or? Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you this, but don't tell anyone. Jonah for Normal People is my angry response at not doing well with the sequel to Love Matters More. So I started on that book. I got frustrated because I just didn't find what I was looking for. I didn't figure out what I wanted to do. So I put it aside and I said, I'm just going to write this book on Jonah because I know Jonah. Jonah's a friend. He won't betray me. And so I finished that one first. So now I'm just now getting back to like, okay, maybe I can pick this other one up again. Sure. I'm a writer too. So I get it. I understand. <laughs> well, well, Jared, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for um, talking with me. And, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation. I love, you know, how you go deeper with, you know, complex philosophical and epistemological topics. And, you know, I, I really get into that myself. So I really enjoy this conversation and I hope you did as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Thanks, Jared. Take care. Okay. There you have it. Uh, thank you, Jared, for coming on the podcast again and for, you know, having this discussion with me. I want to recommend uh, the Bible for Normal People podcast. If you l- listen to a lot of podcasts, I think you and you enjoy this one. I think you would also enjoy that one. But in particular, uh, Jared just completed a four-episode series um, called The Making of the Modern Mindset. And I think it's a really interesting, accessible discussion of the quote-unquote modern mindset. And, uh, and it really, once you listen to those four episodes, I think it illustrates a lot of where Jared is coming from with his ideas from Love Matters More and in this conversation, as well as our previous episode. Um, those four episodes are spread out. You know, you'll have to scroll through their feed and, and find those four episodes if those are the only four you're particularly interested in. But I do recommend them. Um, I also recommend, you know, the Four Normal People book series. You know, Pete Enns and Jared Bias have written Genesis for Normal People, Exodus for Normal People, and now Jonah for Normal People. Um, I really enjoyed both Genesis and Exodus for Normal People. You know, they take, you know, biblical scholarship and uh, make it very accessible for just your average person who is, uh, who is a non-expert to understand and appreciate. Um, and I'm sure Jonah for Normal People will be just as good. So, uh, yeah, check out their work at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. And as always, thank you for listening and tell other people about the podcast. Thank you.